Today's episode of the BS Podcast is brought to you by SeatGeek. That is our presenting sponsor and the easiest way to shop for the best tickets thanks to the revolutionary grading system. Buy and sell tickets in two taps on your phone. Everything fully guaranteed. Right now, my listeners get $10 off baseball tickets the first time they use SeatGeek. All you have to do is use promo code BSMLB. Download the SeatGeek app today or go right to SeatGeek.com. We're also brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. If you're choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interests in mind. Rocket Mortgage provides a transparent online process that helps you understand all the details of your home loan, adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you get the right mortgage solution for you. Skip the bank, skip the waiting, go completely online at quickenloans.com slash Bill Simmons. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. And finally, we are brought to you by Binge Mode, our new podcast that we are launching on The Ringer on June 5th. You can subscribe now on iTunes. I will tell you a little more more about it during this podcast, but basically it's a 60-episode binge watch, binge listen. For anyone who either binge watches Game of Thrones or already watched it and wants to relive it or hasn't seen it before and wants to experience it in real time, we're putting up 30 of these on June 5th, hosted by the mother of dragons, Mallory Rubin, and the Meister, Jason Concepcion. We were really excited about this. These are probably the two smartest people on the planet with Game of Thrones. So if you just want to do the all-time deepest deep dive you've ever done in your entire life on Game of Thrones, this is the podcast for you. Uh, I will tell you more about it during the podcast. Right now, let's go. Pearl Jam. All right, on the line right now, he's he's in uh, he's in the Bay Area. I was in the Bay Area last night. I zoomed in and out for Game One. Kevin O'Connor from The Ringer. You wrote a piece about uh, your quick thoughts, the impressions you had on Game One. We also had Jonathan Charks wrote a uh, a seven a seven things breakdown, which he's very good at about uh, all the things he noticed and the stuff that you guys noticed mirrored. What I noticed at the game, here, here's the one caveat I, I would say. By the way, hello, Kevin. How are you? How's it going, Bill? <laughs> so uh, here's what I think was lost, and maybe you couldn't feel it on TV, but I, I could definitely feel it in person. I had great seats. Uh, my friend John Burbank, who's who's uh, involved with the Warriors, he we sat behind the basket, and I was very close. And I thought the first half was so intense. It, it really like immediately felt like a fourth quarter game seven. I don't know if I've been to a game. I've been to a lot of basketball games. I have never been to a game that immediately kicked off with like game seven level. All the, all the chips have been pushed to the middle of the table intensity. It was amazing. And what happened was once the Warriors started to pull away, you could, you could kind of feel but the air go out of both teams. But for about two and a half quarters, I felt like I was watching Game Seven. I know Cleveland's defense was bad. I know there was. We can talk about all the strategy mistakes, but from an intensity standpoint, I was astonished. What did you think, Kevin? It it, it was tense in the first half. I mean, that whole first half, it it felt like you know it was really going to feel like this for the whole series. Uh, series, and that's what felt so disappointing. And towards the middle of that second quarter, towards uh, the whole second half, really. Yeah. Um, 
I, I, I hope we get more of that moving forward. I'm, I'm not sure if we will. I think since last night, since I wrote my piece, there's been some other things I've looked at after rewatching parts of the game. And Cleveland has a lot they're going to have to overcome. That uh, I think Golden State has ways there they can improve. Cleveland's transition offense wasn't great either. Uh, there's, there's a lot of problems that they have to move on from. They made some strategy mistakes. First of all, the pace was way too fast. And I, I don't know whether they were trying to catch Golden State by surprise or whether they just had so much energy from all the hype in nine days and it's a heavyweight fight and they came out. And both teams, like Golden State missed a lot of easy shots in the first half. And it, a lot of it seemed to be adrenaline-based. You know, easy layups, three-pointers that were a foot too far. But um, the pace was too fast. I don't understand why Cleveland ever in a million years thought it was a good idea for them to do that. Like, I, I went back and looked at the Game 7 box score from last year. I think the final score was 93-89. to 89. Golden State took 83 shots in that game. Last night, they took 106. So, if you, look, this is common sense. Golden State has a better offense. They have better shooters. And they play better if the pace is faster. You don't want to give them more chances to score. I was really surprised that Cleveland didn't try to ugly it up. But I, I really feel like they got caught up in the uh, the Super Bowl nature of that game. Like that first, especially before this, the bench guys came in at the beginning of the second quarter, uh, it was so intense. I think all the game plans went out the window. Is that possible? Like they just kind of forgot what they had planned to do? You know, you, you mentioned their transition. Uh, I looked on Synergy Sports. They had 23 t- transition opportunities last night, and of those 23 chances, they had four turnovers. They shot one for nine from two, one for seven from three. That's two for 16 total on transition. And the thing is, is they were forcing a lot of those chances. Like, rewatch those possessions. Yeah. Golden State was getting back on defense. They were playing good interior defense, whether it was Zaza Pachulia, Kevin Durant, or Draymond Green. And I think I think Cleveland needs to possibly slow things down because they can't force those baskets because so many of those turned back into easy transition points going the other way for Golden State. And like you said, that that, that was the mistake I think they fell into. I understand pushing the pace because it's hard to pass up on transition opportunities. But right. most of those weren't, weren't real transition. It was forced. Yeah, well, so that so that makes me think that might have been the game plan. And if that was the game plan, that's a foolish game plan. It really is. Like, Golden State wants fast. They want chaos. They want, like, long rebounds where all of a sudden they're going off and guys are finding spots. Like, I thought I, at halftime, I really felt like Golden State had left like 25 points on the table. Like they didn't play well. I think you had it. You had the stat in your in your piece today about how in the half court they were averaging like 0.89 points per 100 possessions, which is horrendous. But a lot of that was from the fourth quarter. To be fair to them. Oh, okay. Uh, well, but, but it's still, still have a, they, just, they still did have a lot of missed opportunities they, in the first quarter. I'm gonna say in the first half they missed four or five layups. They missed how many wide open threes that. It was the same thing I noticed in the Boston series, and it was, you know, I'm, I'm kicking myself a little bit, although I, I think Cleveland will be heard from in this series. But the biggest thing I noticed from that Boston series was how many wide-open shots the Celtics had and how many good looks they had. And even when they missed, the guys were open, and they had open layups, they had open post-up plays. Cleveland's defense just wasn't good in the series. Boston's offense was bad. And leaving that series, I was like, man, if Golden State gets the shots Boston just got in that series... It is it. This is a wrap. And now you watch last night. Golden State, one hundred thirteen points. 
I've I felt like with the shots that they had, if they if they got hot in that game, they could have put up 140. Clay was awful. How many layups did they miss? How many like around the rim baskets did they miss? They didn't play well and they scored 113 points. Is that not a good sign for Cleveland? But that's the scary part. You know, after game one of the playoffs when the Cavs beat the Pacers by one, 109 to 108, I wrote an article in my takeaways column that week. What if there was no scoreboard? And because it felt like that game, it wasn't a one point win for Cleveland. It felt like it was 10 or 11. And last night's game, Warriors won by 22, but it felt more like 32, maybe 35. Yeah. It just felt like Cleveland could have, could have and should have lost by more. And that, that's really the scary part. I think for them, the fact that Golden State did miss those easy at-rim opportunities, the fact that Golden State was hit missing some open threes, Clay Thompson 0 for 5, I just think, yeah. you know, Cleveland, there's a lot of lot of areas where, you know, you can expect Cleveland to get better. I think you can expect they're, they're going to hit more threes moving forward. I think they're not going to be as poor in transi- transition, but I also think Golden State's going to be better, too. I just, yeah, I, agree. I just don't think they've seen the best of them yet. The role players on Cleveland sucked. You know, like yeah. if so, if you left that first half, if I said to you before the game, Kyrie and LeBron are going to go off in the first half, and Clay Thompson is going to be horrendous, we would have said, "All right, Cleveland's probably up at halftime." But nobody else on Cleveland's team showed up, and like specifically, Corver really hurt them. Corver had, I'm going to say, either three or four, but I'm going to say four wide open threes. That is the whole reason they got him. He missed all of them. Shumpert missed every shot he took. All, these shots were all going in in the Boston series. Darren Williams came in. He was an atrocity. Jefferson looked five years older than he was last year. Thompson was invisible. I I, I barely even noticed him the whole game. And uh, you know, and meanwhile, Draymond and Clay were six for twenty-eight. Um, that was I. I felt like last night, as weird as it sounds, was the time to catch Golden State because. They didn't play that well. And there was a moment in the third quarter, even with how bad Cleveland was playing, I think it was like 80 to 68. And uh, and Mike Brown had turned into Mike Brown for about four minutes. Like he, first of all, he started Zaza in the second half, which I, I don't, I just don't think Zaza should play in this series, but uh, then replaced him with McAdoo. And they had this weird lineup out there. And it was like, wow, Cleveland, it, they were down 12 playing like crap other than LeBron and Kyrie. And it was like, wow. If LeBron or Kyrie or somebody gets hot, this can become a game, and they just couldn't get it going. It's. Did you agree? Like Charks, Charks thought that uh, they have to pick between Thompson and Love, and that they cannot play both of them. I'm not there yet with conceding that that you can only you have to pick one. You got to go smaller. Where do you stand on that? I don't think small ball is always the solution. I think a lot of the time it is. Uh, I think for them, the one of the one of, to Charks's point, one of the problems is Kevin Love was not good defensively last night, no. and Kevin Love was pretty good, pretty good defensively the entire playoffs. I mean, gotta give him credit um, where it's due. He was pretty good. Uh, the issue is, is that they've never faced, they haven't faced a team yet, obviously, like Golden State that can beat him off the dribble. Um, so I think I look, I think they need Kevin Love uh, to be effective this series. I don't think. I think you're asking for trouble if you're going small and you're relying on Richard Jefferson or, or, or Darren Williams playing 28 minutes instead of 18. Uh, I think you're asking for a lot for, for those guys playing small. You, I think 
really they need Kevin Love to be effective defensively. And the question is, is I don't know if he can. I just don't, I just don't know if he's good enough defensively against this team. He's passable in the rest of the playoffs. But what what does it matter at this point? Well, we haven't even mentioned the guy who was the best player on the court last night, and Kevin Durant. Yeah. I, you know, I'm always thinking about. I always have my rankings in my head all the time. I left that game last night thinking, like, wow, is that the fourth best forward of all time? Is like LeBron and Bird and Duncan. Is there anyone else, any other forward ever that's better than Durant? Durant was unbelievable last night, and. I, there was one play, he, he was trying to do everything, and I think this is, I think he senses the moment in a lot of ways that this is his chance to really put himself on the map as an all-timer, to go head-to-head with LeBron, a guy that's never that's always had a lot of success against Durant's teams. Um, and he brought everything to the table, the speed, the length, the shooting, the passing. There was one play in the third quarter where... Um, Kyrie I think Curry was out and Kyrie was going to take the ball out and Durant just decided he was going to pick Kyrie up full court did you notice this and Kyrie drew Kyrie's like Kyrie's like really you're picking me up full court Durant defending him all the way up the court Kyrie's like I got the clear out I'm going to take KD off the dribble ended up trying to go by him and threw it off the backboard and the only reason Durant did that, I think, because he was trying to show off all these different layers of his game. He was incredible. I mean, LeBron had a 28, he had like a 28-14-6 with like two minutes left in the third quarter, and he wasn't the best player in the four. Durant, I thought, was the best player in the four last night. What would you think? I mean, I think watching Kevin Durant, I, I wondered last night, has the game ever looked easier for a top 50 all-time player? Yeah. Has it ever looked easier than it did last night? I mean, it, it, those open dunks, the, the defense, the deflections. Uh, I, I just can't recall a superstar in a situation where it has ever come that easy for the player. It, it was remarkable to watch, especially his defense. Uh, I mean, like we talked so much throughout the whole season of Golden State's offense, but Durant has added a new element to their defense. Uh, there yeah. were instances where he caused deflections when LeBron tra- tried those cross-court passes. Uh, driving the lane and forcing fast break opportunities, or even just just uh, preventing an open corner three. Uh, Durant was unbelievable. And, and he was flying. Uh, he was like flying is the word I was use. He was flying around the court. He looked one hundred and twenty percent healthy. And uh, you know they did something that really made me mad that the Celtics didn't do more of. They were ready for those LeBron cross court passes. We put in in your piece. We put one of the videos of the guys jumping the. Jump in the pass or, or Jarks's piece, one of, one of those. But LeBron does, he loves doing that. He loves driving and just immediately in a split second firing these, these cross court passes that nobody sees. And the Warriors were trying to jump them, and specifically Durant and, uh, and Draymond were just ready. They were locked in on those, and LeBron's going to need a plan B. But, you know, I, Durant, they're, they're, I always call it command of the room. You know, when you see that, when you see really great players in person in a basketball game, especially when the stakes are that high, and some guys just kind of own the room. It's the same thing as like if you're at a party or at a restaurant, a club, whatever. Just some guys kind of stand out and have a certain swagger to them. And I felt like Durant had that last night. Like he knew where Jay Z was sitting, he knew where Rihanna was sitting, he knew where all the celebs were. He just kind of he just kind of had command of the room, and it was really interesting to see. 
to watch LeBron try to match it. When LeBron's always the guy who has command in the room, right? So they went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And once LeBron realized that he did not have the horses in this game, you could see him kind of ease off the gas pedal. You know, he was going 85 to 100 miles an hour in the first half. In the third quarter, he started downshift. And by the fourth quarter, he's just kind of cruising around the neighborhood. He was saving it, kind of mentally filing away the little things he needed to do. But it's, it's, it's so rare to have two great players guarding each other in the finals. We always think like, oh, Magic and Bird. It's like, well, they didn't guard each other, you know? Uh, when, when Shaq for three years didn't really have a foil. Hakeem and Ewing, you know, we were excited about that. Duncan really never had the guy that, you know, he went against in the East in the finals. Um, this is pretty cool. I, that's my big memory from being there last night is just, wow. This is, these are two, these are probably the best forward of all time and the fourth best forward of all time in their primes going head to head in the finals. It, it was cool to see. I think, I think uh, it might, might not be cool for Cleveland or cool for LeBron though. Uh, Cause I mean, right. he carries such a heavy load offensively already. It, it's so much to ask him to also defend maybe the second best forward uh, of this generation and Kevin Durant. And, and, and the question is, is like, if you take LeBron off Kevin Durant, who do you put on him? I mean, are you relying on Richard, Richard Jefferson to do it? Who's four, 40 years old for the whole game. Are you relying old. on comfort? I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what solution there is besides saying LeBron, you got to do both. I have a, I have an idea on this. I think you just okay. let him get his points. I, I don't think, there's nobody on the roster who's going to stop him. There's no, there's no, there's no Durant stopper. Nobody's stopping Durant. Newsflash, not happening. Yeah. He's getting his points. Like there were moments when it was like, oh, I'm, I'm by myself on the right side with Tristan Thompson guarding me. I'm scoring on you. Oh, Kevin Love. Oh, this is delicious. Hold on, let me put some ketchup on you. Kevin Love goes and scores on him. They had nobody. And if you're gonna play Shumpert on him, which I, I was expecting, and I think they're saving that for game two. Shumpert was a train wreck offensively. He was terrible. So if you put if you put Shumpert in and you have Tristan Thompson in, now you're playing three on five offensively. So is that worth it to to make sure Durant doesn't get his? I to me, I I, I would uh I would put LeBron on Draymond. I agree with Sharks. I would put LeBron on Draymond and try to and make Draymond shoot threes and use LeBron as a free safety. And I would just keep throwing bodies at Durant, <laughs> J.R. Smith. I'd put Kyrie on him. All right, post him up. You know, like just, just do every, just do bullpen by committee on it, and just try to make sure he doesn't get sixty. But worry about the other guys. The other problem they have is they, Curry is, you know, all the way back. I mean, that's about his. The the, the stretch yeah. he's having now is as well as he's played in two years, and there there was what did you notice the one great moment when Love got switched on him. And I think it was the second quarter. And it was like, oh, yeah. game seven, game seven redux. And and Curry knew it and Love knew it. And the fans knew it. And we're like, oh, watch Curry's this little little makeup sex for Curry here. And just torched him. Went by, gave him 17 moves, then just went by him and did a lefty layup, scooped it in. And it was like the, the, the hidden message was, I'm healthy now. Last year was an aberration. This is what happened when I couldn't score on you in the biggest play of our season. I was hurt. Now I'm healthy. I'm going by you. And I don't know. It's pretty illuminating. Kyrie's going to have to guard him. The thing is, they can't guard Kyrie. So if I'm a Cavs fan, the two takeaways I have that I love from this game are 
they can't really guard LeBron and they can't really guard Kyrie. I, I thought Kyrie could get pretty much whatever shot he wanted in that game. What'd you think? Yeah, Kyrie can always get what he wants, I, I, it seems. And, you know, one of the interesting fact, uh, things from last night is Co- Coach Daniel on YouTube did a really interesting uh, speech <laughs> last week before Co- the finals. Who? Coach, Coach who? <laughs> Co- Co- Coach Daniel, that's his YouTube name. He's good. he's really good. He does great stuff. Coach down the Daniel, he did, he did an N- Coach Daniel. Okay, yeah, he, he did an NBA Finals preview piece, and, and basically, like one of the concepts he, he outlined in the video is how Draymond switches off ball. Right. So last night in the game, we saw this with Stephen Curry. Like last year in the finals, the, war, the Cavaliers would try to run screens to get LeBron on Curry. They try to find the best matchup, and they tried that last night. But the adjustment the Warriors have made is they'll switch off the ball before the screen happens. Yep. So if, if Curry is on Irving, right, um, and let's say Thompson is on Smith, they'll have Thompson and Curry switch as Irving setting the screen. So instead of Curry ending up on LeBron, it'll be Thompson. It's, it's a switch before the, the on-ball screen. And that worked effectively last night to completely hide Curry. It didn't. It, there was very few instances where Curry ended up in a really bad matchup. And so, not only is Curry all the way back offensively, but defensively, Golden State has made that tweak to hide him defensively. And it, it was remarkable to see that last night because Cleveland didn't have an answer for that. I mean, they they said after the game like you can't simulate Golden State, but. That's something I feel like they should have or probably did see on film. It's just it's hard to figure out a, a counterattack to that because it's just something Golden State does whenever they want to. And, right. and I'll be curious to see how they attack that moving forward if they figure out new creative ways to do it. There was that fun play when Curry went to – he ran over to the corner. They basically did the Isaiah Thomas defensive tactic with Love. And Love immediately tried to post up, and LeBron threw in the ball, and Draymond came flying over and just blocked it. Like, they were ready for all of Cleveland's moves. And, you know, Cleveland, the three teams they played, and especially last round, God God bless the Celtics. I love that team. But, man, you know, you're going from injured Isaiah Thomas in two games, then he's not even in the game anymore, and just this hodgepodge group of people who would not have been one of the best four players on the Warriors to – Kevin Durant and Steph Curry. I was talking to a friend this morning. I think Durant and Curry are two of the best five players in the league, um, even though there's seven best players in the league. But you could argue, like, the way Curry's playing now, would you rather have – like, forget the season, forget the MVP. Just would you rather have Stephen Curry or James Harden? I think I would rather have Stephen Curry. Like, just like, I, who would I want in a series? I would rather have Stephen Curry. I think he's in the top five somewhere. And they have two of the top five, and I was racking my brain trying to think of any other time that's happened. And it's really, you know, McHale and Bird in 86, uh, Elgin and Jerry in the 70s, West and Wilt in the, in the I mean, Elgin and Jerry in the 60s, West and Wilt in the 70s, Cowens and Havlicek, Dwayne Wade and LeBron in 2011, Shaq and Kobe for those three years. This does not happen very often. And... You know, I think this is LeBron's the biggest challenge he's had in the finals ever. You know, like 2015, he's hurt. He's, you know, they had injury. He wasn't hurt, but they had injuries and there were excuses. There's no excuses. He built this super team and they're all healthy and it's not enough. And he's going to have to dip into some reservoir that he has not dipped into before. And that, or else they're going to get killed. Last night I was sitting there, you know, it's like the, 
third quarter, early fourth quarter, whatever it was, and I'm sitting there thinking about what are they going to do if we get three more games of this? Like if there's three more blowouts, Cleveland gets slapped, or even if they lose in five, yeah. like what what answers can they find this summer to to solve these issues? I mean, it's a long list. Like we've went through just a, a handful of them, and, and there's more uh, that talk about from a roster construct standpoint. It's just it's it, it's hard to figure out you know, what they can possibly do to, to solve this long list of issues. And, and, you know, it's too early to look forward. But at the same time, I just, last night I couldn't help but think about it. You know, just while sitting there at the NBA Finals, uh, when there's a game being played, I'm thinking forward. Yeah. Uh, I just, uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to figure that out. So let me put the brakes on for a second. The home team's supposed to win game one. Uh, only two guys on Cleveland played well. They had a bad strategy. And, you know, I think... As I said, I think I said earlier that they had 106 shots last night and 83 in Game Seven. The, the the recipe for them to hang with this Golden State team in Golden State is to replicate Game Seven and to slow the pace down. Exactly what Jarks wrote about today: slow the pace down, ugly it up, walk mm-hmm. it up constantly. Every every offensive play is basically either LeBron and Kyrie together with the screen. Or somebody else saying it, just that constant, constant LeBron trying to get the right guy on a switch that he can torch. And that's the only way they're going to win. They, they, they need Clay to suck. They need, uh, they need Iggy and Draymond to miss threes. And they need these games to be like 96 to 90, 95 to 89. They need Thompson to slow it down. Thompson gets going. Um, and they need, you know, think about Kyrie in game four. I really think the Celtics, I know it's crazy because Celtics were just not that good of a playoff team, but I really think they were going to win game four when LeBron got those four fouls. And Kyrie just went to seven other levels. You know, he he was insane. So they need him to, I, I know it's like a cliche to say they need Kyrie to have an awesome game, but they need something like that in Oakland by either LeBron or Kyrie. They need one of them to have an out-of-body experience. And Kyrie has it in him. I, w- I actually was waiting last night for him to do it. I was I was like, oh, wonder if wonder if Kyrie's going to, you know, the scary Kyrie, I wonder if he's going to show up. He never, he never really showed up. But that's, you know, that's what's going to have to happen because I think otherwise the Warriors are too good. I think Durant's too good. They do not have an answer for Durant. I don't, I, that's the one where if you leave game one, and you go, all right, what do we do to stop Durant? Everybody just stares at each other. Uh, mm. And what do you do? I don't know. Hey, can I tell you, uh, I sat next to Kevin Hart randomly last night, who was rooting for really? the... Kevin Hart. He's rooting for the Cavaliers. And uh, the, the, th- the three takeaways I had was, he calls LeBron LJ. I think that's LeBron. You know how the, the players have the... the basketball public nickname but then like the nickname nickname that's the real nickname so he was calling him lj, LJ. he was calling Kyrie. <laughs> he's calling Kyrie ka tate loves this tate's on the edge of his seat and tate what do you think he called jr smith j real no he called jr smith swish oh nice apparently that's jr smith's like underground nickname swish he's like come on swish come on swish it's doing that. But yeah, so it was LJ, Khan, Swish. Did not have a nickname for Kevin Love. I think it was Kevin. But uh, but he said he, he was rooting for the Cavs because he had a lot of shoe stuff. But then Rihanna showed up with Jay-Z. They were four seats apart. They seemed like they did not come together, but were obviously knew each other. And uh, 
Brianna, tall lady. I'm going to put her at about 6'1", Kevin. Maybe say maybe six six feet and a half, something like that. But definitely was decked out and rooting for the Cavs and giving everybody shit. So that was pretty funny. But it was, I mean, you haven't, was that the first finals game you've been to? Yeah, that, that was my first finals game, Bill. It was, it was a really cool experience. What was your biggest takeaway from just the, the difference between a finals game and a normal game? I, w- I would say really everything before the game, just just how many people are there early. Like usually yeah. when you show up to a, any any game, playoffs, regular season, like the arena is really empty or like a couple hours before the game. You can just kind of sit baseline and do your thing. But at the finals, like all the security's out, all the cameras are out. It, it, you, you, like you know it's the finals when you step out there. And like that was my first takeaway, showing up at the arena like four hours before the game or however long it was. Just you know it's the finals the second you're there. And that, that was a really cool experience. And it's also, I used to love, especially when we did Countdown the two years, I used to love getting there as early as possible because there's just so much history on the court. You know, like, oh, there's Isaiah mm-hmm. Thomas who's walking around. Oh, there's Barkley. You know, it's like these guys who are <laughs> yeah. like the, in the top 30 all time are just like become these characters dissecting the game. And then every relevant media person is there. There's a million good conversations to stumble into. And, uh, and then you add the celebrity factor and it's the finals is the best. It's really, really cool. And it's, you know, NBA.com does those little mini movies where they try to capture it, like these little five minute that they use all their cameras and all that stuff. And those are pretty cool. Those come fairly close to capturing what it's like, but man, the energy in that place in the first quarter, because we've got nine days of hype, but then to actually watch it and, there was a moment in the game when everybody kind of got to do their thing for about four minutes where it was like Curry did his thing and he did his, he was like, Hey, by the way, I have one of the greatest handles in the league and I'm probably the best shooter. And he did a couple of those. And then LeBron was doing his thing and just going to the basket and getting in the line and doing LeBron stuff and throwing crazy passes. And then Durant's Durant and Kyrie. And it was, it was just a staggering display of talent, you know? And I, I, I don't, I don't think people should get discouraged about this series yet. I think Cleveland's really good, and I think they just had a bad strategy for game one. There's some holes on the Warriors team. Zaza's terrible. Like Zaza played, what, 12 minutes? Like, he's an abomination. Um, they re- Ian Clark was out there. Like they, It's not like the Warriors had, you know, have this great one through nine team, and role players, you know, often decide some of these games. So I, I expect the Cavs to slow it down. And uh, and do their thing. Do you think what would you what would your prediction be for game two? I, I think Cleveland does need to slow it down. The thing is, is I'm not sure they will. Uh, like last night, there was kind of a unified message from everybody. They were all all like reciting the same lines. You know, you know, not as much, can't turn the ball over as much as last game. You know, you can't simulate Golden State. But the one other thing, like Richard Jefferson, kind of scoffed at the idea of slowing it down. He's like, this is the way we played all year. Uh, this this is who we are and. I just, I just think they, they're gonna have to slow it down. If they do that for game two, I think if they don't do it for game two, I think they're gonna lose. I think they have well, a that's, chance absolutely if they slow it down. That's uh, like Atlanta, some Atlanta, at some, point. some Atlanta Falcons stuff there, right? Keep attacking, keep attacking. Oh, please give us the ball back. Like sometimes you have to adjust yeah. to what the reality of the situation is, and you're not gonna beat Golden State playing small ball. You're just not, and you're not gonna beat them in a game where both teams have a hundred shots. 
it's just not happening. You have to, their advantage, I think, is to, I, I respectfully disagree with Charks. I think they have to play Thompson and Love because if they're going to go small ball, now you have Darren Williams and Iman Shumpert, all these guys that aren't good, and you're just playing into the Warriors' hands. The one advantage they have is they can pound the boards and they have three guys who can get 15 rebounds in a game. You know? Thompson, Love, Love had 21 rebounds last night. Thompson, Love, and LeBron can completely dominate the boards in the paint. So that to me, that's what they have to do. And they have to... Slow down the pace so they don't put too many miles on these guys and all that stuff. All right, Kevin, stay out of trouble in uh, in in Oakland, and I'll see you at Game Three. <laughs> I'll do my best, Bill. All right, take care. Bye bye. Quick break to talk about hotel tonight. If you're like me and you're not so great at planning ahead, I've got good news for you. There's an awesome app called Hotel Tonight that helps you find amazing hotel deals at the last minute. Unlike flights, hotel rates usually get cheaper at the last minute. Hotel Tonight helps hotels sell their unsold rooms, allowing them to pass those deals along to you. Not for last resort places, but cool top-rated hotels. Hotel Tonight has over 15,000 awesome partner hotels in 36 countries. Perfect for a spontaneous getaway or a trip you've wanted for a while. Like if your favorite sports teams say, made the NBA Finals. Oh yeah, I'm talking to you Cleveland and San Francisco, even though the app's name is Hotel Tonight. You can book up to a week in advance. All it takes is 10 seconds just a tap and a swipe. Get in on those killer last-minute deals and download the Hotel Tonight app right now. Also, don't forget, Monday, June 5th, The Ringer is launching Binge Mode. That is the first podcast of its kind that we've ever done. For the next six weeks, The Ringer's Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion, a.k.a. the Mother of Dragons and the Maester, will dive deep into HBO's Game of Thrones. And I mean deep. Theories, explanations, the history of why this person did this and why that person did that. Impressions of Robert Baratheon. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was around the first 10 episodes of Binge Mode are going to drop on Monday, June 5th, which correspond to season one of Game of Thrones. And every Monday, a new batch of 10 episodes will be coming out. And the reason we did this, and we're trying, and look, it might not 100% work. I think it's going to work, but it might not because we've never done anything like this before. We're hoping that either if you've never watched a show before and you want to binge watch it up until the Game of Thrones premiere date, that you can watch the shows and then listen to the podcast and kind of experience it through them. Also, we're hoping if you want to binge watch the show for a second time, do it and jump in with Mallory and Jason And then third, you might just be a weirdo who wants to listen to these anyway. I'm in that camp. I'm going to listen to these but not binge watch the shows again. But either way, um, if you ever cared about the inner workings of Game of Thrones and every possible why did this happen, why did that happen conversation, and you just want to be prepared, you want to be impress your friends, whatever, I would listen to this because it is a really good podcast. So subscribe to Binge Mode. An Apple podcast, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. By the way, we call it Binge Mode because of the story in uh, a, like September 2015 when we were trying to figure out a nickname. I mean, a, a name for the site, which ended up being The Ringer. Uh, one night at like 2 in the morning, and I might have had a few drinks, I came up with the name Binge Mode and got excited and bought the URL on the internet. And then excitedly emailed Sean and Julia and Chris and Mallory. I was like, I got that in binge mode. And they were like, is this a joke? It was terrible. I, this is why you shouldn't buy URLs at two in the morning if you've had drinks. 
So it's been a running joke ever since. And then when we did this podcast, we were like, we should call this binge mode. And it actually makes sense. So full circle all the way around binge mode. Subscribe now. All right. We're going to call my buddy Jacko because my reunion is this weekend. I want to talk to him. All right. Calling uh, our old friend Jacko, a BS report slash BS podcast hall of famer. And and uh, somebody who is going to our 25th college reunion this weekend. So it might be the last time I ever talked to him. I don't know if he's going to have a drinking act where he drinks himself to death uh, out of joy or out of agony and pain. It's it's unclear. <laughs> Maybe doing shots just to numb the pain of the moment. But are you scared? Are you excited? What's go? What are your What's your thought process right now? Um, I'm a roller coaster of emotions right now. I'm, I'm a little bit excited. I'm a little bit nervous. I'm a little bit apprehensive. I just don't know what to expect. I, I plan to just, you know, I'm going to follow Bluto's advice from Animal House. I'm just going to start drinking and just continue doing that. <laughs> drinking heavily. What are the odds of you getting into a heated political conversation with somebody after 15 drinks tonight? Uh, no, probably not because, I mean, I don't have any dog in this fight. I'm not a Trump supporter by any stretch of the imagination, so... Yeah, I doubt there's very many Trump supporters that are going to be, uh, you know, coming after me to challenge how wonderful your leader is. But um, so I think I'm probably pretty safe in that regard. Uh, do you wish I was going, or or do you think I was the only smart one here? Well, I wish you were going, but yeah, I think you're. I think you're also smart for not. But I def- definitely wish you were going. And I wish I could. I wish I could somehow monetize the fact that every time someone asks me where's Bill or how's Bill, <laughs> then I could retire. Just say he's not the fucking under, here. We don't talk anymore. On, the over under on where's Bill is gonna is about seventy five hundred, and I'm gonna bet the over. You um, have to. Um, you have to create some fake story like we had a falling out and we don't talk anymore or something. I'm just gonna say Bill who. Just say what? Just say Bill owes me money from 15 years ago, and I haven't talked to him since. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. That sounds good. Do you think so? Do you think people will bring their spouses to this? Because I always feel like that is the reunion faux pas of all time. Is bringing? Well, I I, you, I looked on I looked yesterday because you can see who is going to this thing, so you can see the list of attendees, and the number of bringing spouses is very sparse. Good. Now maybe that's you know maybe there will be spouses there and they're just not on the official registrants. But sometimes you did see a few where it was like, you know, so and so, and then it had like a, the same name right underneath it. So you know it's a spouse. But um, you know if you went to Holy Cross with your spouse, obviously they're going to be there, like our yeah. friend Chip Cade. But um, other other spouses seem to be uh, sparse in attendance. So that's there's nothing worse than the the. The bummed out spouse who's just being constantly introduced to people who aren't going to remember who they are 10 seconds later. That, that and also the standing there while your husband or wife is, does 25 minutes of remember the time we, <laughs> yeah, and the like, spouse just stands there like looking at their shoes, you know? The, la- the last reunion I went to was the 10-year, and, and uh, I'd I, 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 I do some things over again. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been back since. But... Uh, but yeah, it was it was rough. I think the big difference this time would be the 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 cell phones and God, we sound so old. But the I the know. selfies and the pictures, it's going to be. I mean, when we, it's funny because we have this Facebook page for our reunion, and everybody's been posting these photos for the last six months. And Tate, you'll love this. Tate's amused and horrified right now. <laughs> 
tape when we were in college, we had cameras and you just had a roll of like thirty six pictures and you just snap pictures and the roll was done, then you put another roll in and then you would bring them to the photo store. Yeah, take them to Walgreens. Right. Yeah. Take them to Walgreens, wherever, and you get like all the things developed and you would what would we hope for a batting average for good photos from each roll, right? It was like 36 photos, maybe five would be good? Yeah, exactly. Half of them would be blurry. Like, you'd be like, oh, that would have been the best picture, but the guy's thumb was over the lens. And we and now it's just like, you just keep taking photos until until you have a good one. You just keep deleting them. So I'm expecting know, well, great photos from you. Now you can see what the photo looks like, too. Right. You couldn't do that in the old days. We didn't. There was nothing on the back of the camera to see how it came out. Well, and then you your roll back from Walgreens after you dropped it off for an hour or two hours and get it back. The photos were incredible. I'm always amazed thinking. I'm always amazed thinking back too about now that cell phones are so ubiquitous and we can't do anything without our cell phones. Like, how did we ever meet people? Like, if we were having a I don't party, or if we were going to a party or a bar, like, how did we ever meet up with people pre-cell phone? It's the biggest. It's really crazy. It's the biggest thing that I can't. I can't wrap my head around when I think back to college where, you know, you had, we, we had different, we were obviously in our, we had our group, but sometimes you would drift off to this other group on Carroll street and we would go to parties and I'd be like, I really hope Jacko's there. And then you'd come in and it was like the Shawshank, the end of Shawshank. (laughs) You go nuts. Now we would just text each other. Hey, you go to the, yeah, all right. I'll see that. I'll be there at 10 15. But it was, there was a level of excitement that just I can't imagine cell phones would match. I mean, you'd probably so spend more time today. You'd spend more time worrying that your cell phone was going to run out of batteries. I guess. God, we sound so old. This right. is great. But, Ridiculously old. But um, so the reunion. Yeah. I do you have a plan? Is to, is Friday night going to be the big night? Saturday? What What are you going to do? Just full full throttle well, two days. Well, we're, I'm going basically with our buddy, the Blue Boy. And uh, so I'm picking him up in Worcester in a matter of hours. And we're immediately going on the pub crawl at 3.30. So they put you on a bus. <laughs> and you you go on a bus to Old Haunts in Worcester. Mm. Now, sadly, they've closed Jody's, but they do take us to McGuire's, which was our other bar haunt in, in Worcester. And some other yeah. bar first. I don't know where it is. So... You know, I, I plan on being sober for about an hour, and then I'm going to get on the bus, and then it's just all bets are off. So then, you know, then you hit the ground running at the pub crawl, mm. and then at night tonight they have like a, you know, cocktail party, DJ, dinner thing. So, you know, open bar is my friend, and I'm um, just going to hit the ground running there. So t- today's probably the big day. I think you go in and you make a big splash. Tomorrow's like a recovery. in this thing for the whole... notes about our friend blue boy (laughs) uh first of all one of my good friends he's never been allowed on a podcast in 10 years so i I think that's (laughs) let's start there uh just not allowed just just not gonna happen um why don't you tell the story of how he got the nickname blue boy (laughs) well i I couldn't testify to this but apparently blue boy was the name of a 
male exclusive uh, pornographic magazine back in the day. Yes, it was. And he and he had a <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> and Blue Boy had a blue car, and his older brother gave it the name Blue Boy in in, in deference to the magazine. And so he would call the car Blue Boy, and so right. we would be hanging out at our house, and we would see the car come in, and we would go Blue Boy, and then it, and then the, somehow the nickname moved from the car to him because he was the sole driver of the car, so he became Blue Boy in honor of his car, in honor of a male exclusive pornographic magazine. That's our friend Blue Boy, and uh, yeah, and that's yeah. He, uh, I don't know what he's going to be capable of this weekend, but um, I'm again, surprised. Yeah, I'm surprised he's in for all of this, and like, really, he's he's the most excited person I know about this. So um, that troubles me a little too because I just don't know what to expect. Now I wish I had gone. I do, now I, I have regrets. Too. Yeah, it was a really poor performance. It's a, I got I got sidetracked by the finals and this thing, the soccer thing, and for my daughter. They and, have the finals. They have the finals every year. Your 25th reunion comes but once. I know, but but really, I just want to see you guys. We could do that anywhere. Yeah, yeah, that's we, true. That's we'd true. all end up just hanging out in a group together anyway. I will, uh, I will take copious notes and give you a full report. Believe me. The Facebook page where everybody was posting photos, I got sidetracked. I forgot to finish that. It's it's an, an amazing, amazing document of how poorly people dressed in the late eighties and early nineties. It's, it's, sta- yeah. it's staggering. We might as well be wearing Amish clothes from, from <laughs> like the clothes they wore in Sturbridge in the 1780s. It's the giant sweaters with the, somebody posted a picture that I was in a couple of days ago where I'm wearing, it, it, we were at some function. I'm wearing a gray suit and a black shirt and a black tie. Yeah. It's, I, it's like, it looks like I'm, Going to an 80s party where I'm trying to parody an 80s outfit, but that was actually the outfit, and I thought it was a good idea. It is incredible. I remember when you wore that, and you were all proud. Like you, I was. You were like, oh, yeah, look at this. There's another one where, for some inexplicable reason, another picture where you're wearing like an Indiana Jones hat. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Remember, I got that hat in the Bahamas. Remember, it was like a hat made out of like a banana tree or something? And then I brought it back and wore it in Worcester, Massachusetts, inexplicably, for like a month. <laughs> I don't know what the oh my god. I what's scary is I you know, I'm half Italian. For whatever reason, the half Italian became full Italian with the way I dressed at, at in college for like two years, right. leading to that black suit. I'm gonna put you know what I'm gonna do for uh for America? I'm gonna put on my Instagram, I'm gonna put that picture on because I, I really can't describe how bad the outfit was. And I'm gonna put the hat <laughs> picture on too. You can get both. Nice. But uh but these pictures were Hilarious, and then all of a sudden there was a little bitterness this week because some people were mad that they weren't in the pictures. Right, I was like, "We'll right. just post the pictures." We're, we're, people are just posting pictures of their friend groups. I know that. that I don't understand down a that whole rabbit hole of like you know about in groups and out groups and people. You know, not to mention people are forty-seven years old, by the way, <laughs> right. and we're still talking about like clicks and in groups and and you know bitterness <laughs> from when you were twenty-two. Like you know, let's move on, folks. Guess so that what, should be fun. Guess Hopefully what happened? the bad tension comes out after a few cocktails. So. <laughs> yeah, like, hey, settle down. Yeah, guess what, <laughs> guess what happens in college? You show up and you become friends with whoever's whoever's in the rooms around you in your dorm. That's what right, happens right. 97%. Tate, your best friends from exactly. college? Yeah. What are they from? 
they're from North Carolina. Uh, no. They're from college, but were they from your freshman? Yeah, from the floor, from the same building. So you know Jacko was in the room next to me freshman year. Wow. And, and one of the reasons we became friends was because he didn't realize I was home once. And he was just belting out the lyrics to The Unforgettable Fire by U2. <laughs> That happened a lot in college where people didn't realize somebody was in the next room and they were just like kind of really feeling themselves and belting out uh, songs and stuff. But yeah, we were, Jacko and I were literally next to each other. Joe House was seven rooms down. And that's it. That's who you end up being friends with. It has nothing to do with like in groups or whatever. It's just you're friends with who you were next to as a freshman. You're 18. Um, what do you think the toilet situation is going to be like? Is it going to be as bad as it was when we were in college? Did they solve that? Well, the good news is like we're staying in some new residence hall that didn't exist when we were there. Yeah. And according to the reunion thing, every room has a private bathroom. Oh my god! So guess, and so it's just it's just me and the blue boy sharing our bathroom. So pray for that one. But um, we don't have to have like a communal one with like thirty people using it. So that's good. Wow. Tate, what else do you want? A private shower and a private bathroom and air conditioning. Tate, what else do you want to know from the reunion pregame show? (laughs) (laughs) Hold on. Let's give the reunion pregame show a sponsor. Actually, this reunion pregame show, all right, we have a special sponsor at stamps.com, our old friend. Convenient, easy, reliable, flexible. My favorite words to describe stamps.com. Why not avoid the post office? Why would you buy print official U.S. postage with your own computer and printer? Why wouldn't you hand your packages to your own mailman right outside your own house or apartment? Sign up with Stamps.com. You can automatically calculate and print the correct amount of postage for every letter or package you send. It's the postal service right at your fingertips. Any letter, any package, any class of mail. You're in control of all of it. They'll even send you a digital scale to automatically calculate exact postage, and they'll help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs right now. Use my code BS for this special offer, a four-week trial, plus postage, plus a digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, type in BS, that's Stamps.com, enter BS, sign up today, Stamps.com. Never go to the post office. Again, back to Jacko. Wow, who knew the reading pregame show was going to have a sponsor? That was so exciting. I'm going to see if I can. I'm going to see if I can get the bus driver to play this on the pub crawl. <laughs> hey guys, settle down. Listen to my podcast. Um, hold on, we got to we got to quickly talk about the Yankees because uh, okay. Aaron Judge is on pace for 85 homers or something, and yeah. and is clearly headed for five years from now talking in front of the senator senator committee testifying <laughs> saying he's not here to talk about the past i i don't think there's oh, any question geez. anymore he's now he's i'm kidding he's been uh he's been fantastic is this your favorite yankee since jeter where where does he rank right now oh god yeah now i love aaron judge i i love aaron judge he's uh he's been everything we hoped for and more i mean they brought him up in september and he hit like 200 struck out left and right and i was like oh he's probably too big too big of a strike zone and this year, he's just he worked really hard in the off season apparently, and he's just like absolutely caught lightning in a bottle. And he's like says all the right things. He's super humble. He's like the toast of New York. He did a funny bit on Jimmy um, Jimmy Fallon where he like interviewed people outside Yankee Stadium, pretending to be a sports reporter, talking about Aaron Judge, and they didn't realize it was him. And he was really good. The kid's like twenty four or twenty five, and he's like. 
quiet kid and he was like really a natural like acting and like it's just you couldn't have asked for anything better than what he's been so far not to mention the numbers he put up Girardi had to move him to the three hole yesterday because he's like the best hitter in their lineup so it makes sense so you're back you're starting to great defensively too everywhere you're feeling like this is a little 95 ish I do feel a little 95 ish I mean they got these you know he came up and has been phenomenal um, they're getting this pitching they didn't expect from Severino and Pineda. Yeah, and you know they got they got a right they got a good mix of like young guys and they got and older veterans. Matt Holiday is apparently like a great clubhouse presence. Gardner has been the best player in baseball in May. They got these young kids producing. It's unbelievable. And then there's all this hope on the farm. Like they weren't supposed to be this good this early. Like they're supposed to be like a year or two away. So if they you know. If they have to do anything this year or make some noise, look out, because then next year Glaber Torres is coming, although he may, he may be coming this year the way Chase Headley's hitting. Um, he may be the third baseman before long. So you got all these kids on the farm. they got the ability to make some moves because they got such a deep uh, farm system. It's, it's fantastic. Why aren't they wearing the, uh, the black arm patch on the, uh, on the jerseys? Oh, God, four. For Arada's Chapman's shoulder. Well, that's the thing. I mean, normally you lose your closer who's like this big guy, but they had Batanza step up to the plate. He's been phenomenal as the closer. So right. when he comes back, it's basically an embarrassment of riches. When who comes you back? Know? I mean, he, When Chapman comes that? back well, in 2019? <laughs> okay. Okay, your second starters, elbows held together with duct tape and wire for $217 million bucks. Hey, in retrospect, in retrospect, that uh, David spending three hundred and twelve million dollars on David Price and uh, Pablo Sandoval maybe not the best idea. It was it was positively Trumpian. <laughs> really I mean, that Sandoval. You know, they, the Yankees take heat and rightfully so for some of these disastrous contracts. That Sandoval contract. I mean, Jesus, that's the worst contract in the history of baseball. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, Carl Crawford. To be fair, Carl Crawford is well, the worst yeah. contract in the history of baseball. Yeah. Who could have guessed? Who could have guessed that uh, Sandoval would potentially get out of shape once he got given large sums <laughs> yeah. of money? I have on my League of Dorks team, which has a chance to win the title this year. We have Chapman, Batances, and Clippard. So we had oh, all our boy. bases covered in case Chapman's arm came flying off his body, and then it actually happened. So yeah. we replaced the saves, but so I'm 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 kind of like you, even though I hate the Yankees, where I'm refreshing Chapman's player profile, and they're like, right. he played catch today. It's like, oh, he played catch. Okay, yeah, <laughs> we're back. Um, yeah, but it's a, it's and yesterday they were talking about like the distance he was able to throw, like he was going to start throwing from like ninety feet or something. So right. Good sign there. We're making some progress. Do you know? I mean, it was um, funny because you know he he was pitching. He he actually was he labored through a couple of saves, and he blew one against um was it against the Red Sox where he got lit up? And, yeah. And you're like, and he, you know, you're like, but he still was throwing like a hundred or a hundred and two. But I guess it affected his movement or whatever. So yeah, it's concerning when a guy's whole bread and butter is throwing 102 to 105 and the shoulder is, is uh, shaky. That's not great. But well, the bottom line is you, you, you've you dealt him last year for somebody who's the best prospect in the entire American League and then re-signed him, which is a pretty, pretty unbelievable uh, turn of events. Yeah, my thing with the Red Sox, it's been a strangely dissatisfying season so far from a team that has like a $700 million payroll. But, right. But um, 
they it doesn't feel like they've gotten going yet. And right. the, the price thing, it's like whatever. It's it's the offense that the offense and the setup guys have been the the concerning things to me. And just of like, I don't know what. I I knew Ortiz. I knew they were going to miss his his bat and the clubhouse presence, but. It's definitely there's definitely been a ripple effect. Like you can you can feel it, but yeah. I, well, my thing is like officially I, lurking now though. They've had a good. No, I know. I, I mean, I was hoping they were like dead and buried in mediocrity. Nah, they, they're uh, too they're, talented. They're sniping at Farrell, and you know they're getting ready to get rid of Farrell, and they're whining about you know they want Farrell gone. And then they caught fire, and like last night they're getting murdered by the Orioles, and then they made it interesting in the eighth inning. I mean the ninth inning. Right. Hall of Famer Jackie Bradley Jr. hit a three-run homer or something. I mean, they the team has no they have no pop, but they've had a little bit in the past like week and a half. So if they start hitting some home runs, well, that's the know, thing. Uh, and whatever price gives them, they're going to be scary. Yeah, the bats are just starting to come around. I never panic about baseball until July. I just think, yeah, you know, it's all these teams are so close, and you have the wild card and right, whatever. I just thought I thought they would hit more homers. That's what, that's what I was I, – I just thought that it would be this new generation of, you know, kind of the uh, the 77 Red Sox basically, and it's hasn't totally happened yet. And and uh, I miss well, Ortiz. You know, puppy left, and he took the good stuff with him. And, uh, oh. You know, for them to get other stuff, obviously. Oh, you, you know? should talk. Aaron, Aaron George out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> on pace for 840 homers. Kids are born again Christian. He does it the right way. Clean living. They made him pee in a cup last week, but the cup disintegrated. So I don't know what that means. Because <laughs> he's so strong. The, the cup just melted. <laughs> it's good. I I was talking with somebody. Oh, when I had Dezus and Mara on, I was we were talking about how the Yankees Red Sox rivalry kind of died. I remember the first two years of my podcast, or basically the first three, like the Red Sox Yankees rivalry was so heated, we would just call each other and make fun of each other's teams all the time. And then it just died. Like it, it, it just, it just didn't really matter anymore. And they'd have these four and a half hour games on ESPN on Sunday night, and it just the magic was gone. And now I'm hoping if Price can come back, if Chapman comes back, and then we start having some old school star studded Yankee Red Sox games again, that'd be a fun way to spend the summer. Sign me up. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, if they're battling for first place, it would definitely be fun. But. This is the Red Sox thing now. Like, for, for 100 years, the Yankees kicked the Red Sox ass. Like, yeah. for literally 100 years. And then Red Sox are like, oh, this is a bitter rivalry. We're bitter rivals. You've had a good 10 years, and everybody's like, well, that rivalry's over. That's all done. Forget about that. Like, what the fuck happened to the previous 100 years where we kicked your ass? And now you're declaring the rivalry's over? <laughs> if you remember, and I even wrote a piece about this. I was one of the few who never called it a rivalry because the Red Sox never won. I always called right. it a, I called it a feud. It was right. a feud. It was just bad blood, but a rivalry insinuates that both sides have exchanged dominance. <laughs> yes. And we just if lost anything, to it's all probably the time. More of a, it should be more of a rivalry now than it ever has been. Yeah. Oh, it's it it is, but it just doesn't what really needs to happen is there needs to be a fight in a game. We need our Bryce, yeah. Bryce Harper Strickland moment where we need somebody to hit yeah. somebody, need bad blood. We need Pedroia to, you know, to charge somebody and all that. That all needs to happen. We need something. I mean, what sort of slowed things down in the rivalry was, you know, you had Johnny Damon, who was a Red Sox, and then he became a Yankee. And yeah. All these guys are friendly. All these guys are friendly off the field, and they all respect Jeter, and the Red Sox respected, or I mean, the Yankees respected Ortiz, and 
you know, there was too much love among the players. Like in the seventies, like Thurman Munson and Carlton Fisk like legitimately hated each other. Yeah, they had... you know they hated Greg Nettles because he hurt Bill Lee. Yeah, like there was real legit bad blood. Like Veritek and A Rod, you know, there was some bad blood there. Of course, everybody hated A Rod. <laughs> True, <laughs> that didn't really foster the rivalry, but. You know, it's not like the old days where you really had real, actual dislike, you know? Yeah, the, uh, I, I, part of it was when Pedro left. I think yeah. the pa- Pedro kind of coincided. Pedro and Posada, yeah. And, and also the Yankee fans really fed off Pedro, when he, especially in Yankee Stadium. Those those games were events. And then when the Who's Your Daddy stuff started, that gave a little extra life. But, I mean, um, I was at that game in 2003 with, with Pedro and Clemens when yeah. Zimmer got thrown down. And that literally, like, I've ne- that was the most nervous I've ever been at a sporting event because that was <laughs> the Roman Coliseum. Right. Like, that crowd literally, like, wanted blood. Like, they would have, like, yeah. they could have gotten their hands on, you know, Kareem Garcia. They would have, like, torn him to shreds, like <laughs> like some ancient Roman thing. I, that was really, like, ooh, this is getting a little too intense. and. You know, then the Red Sox won in 2004, and I think that released a lot of the pressure. You know, it was like opening a valve. So Yeah, you had Clements, who he hated, Paul O'Neill, who everybody hated, and who remains one of the most loathsome players who ever laced up uh, baseball cleats. We had Warrior. the Manny, Manny Ortiz combo that yeah. was just fun and felt like it, it, these were like our two, our two buddy cops trying to topple the Yankee rivalry, basically. So maybe, right. you know, one bench clearer, Judge comes in and just starts throwing people around. He probably turns green like the Incredible Hulk. We, <laughs> in a bench clearing brawl, he, he grows two feet. It's really amazing. Johnny, congratulations. This guy's headed for 800 homers, and I don't see anyone stopping him. Congratulations. I, think he's a, he's, I know what you're trying to do. He's a what am I trying to do? I'm not trying to do you're anything. Trying to jinx him. I'm really happy you're for you. To jinx him and it's not going to work. I think it's going to get the, the final list will be Judge 1, Bonds 2. Ruth three, <laughs> Sammy Sosa four. I, I just can see right. it in my head. And Gary Sanchez yeah. Productions is starting to hit too. What's that? Gary Sanchez Productions. He's starting to hit too. Yeah, he hit two home runs yesterday. Don't let him get hot. Him and Judge, it's like Ruth Gehrig for the 21st century. <laughs> I'm very happy for you. I'm also happy that we didn't talk Trump. I know you have to go, but yeah. actually, I'll give you I'll give you one minute on Trump and then go. Well, I mean, it's a minor thing, but, like, this really sums up Trump this week. He, he's half falling asleep, and he sends out this tweet about media kofefe or whatever, right? Right. So, obviously, he was trying to type coverage, and he's a moron, and he, so he leaves it up there as kofefe. Now, a normal human and a normal political party would say, oh, he was tired, and he fucked it up, and he made a typo. No big deal. But what does Sean Spicer, his press secretary, come out and say? He's like, well, people in the know know what it means. And, like, try to be all cagey about it. Like, it's some secret fucking code from this moron. Like, that's like a North Korea shit. That's like cult of personality. And Republicans hated it when Democrats were like, Obama is the messiah and this cult of personality. And now they're even worse with the cult of personality because, like, his minions have these quotes on TV and in the paper where he's like the sun god. Like, you know, all life emanates from Trump and he's so wonderful and everything's going perfectly. And anybody with eyes can see that it's not going perfectly. And when you have to do that about something stupid like a typo in a fucking tweet, I mean, that's not a healthy place for the country to be in. It's not good. It's, you know. You know, just come out and say, oh, he was falling asleep and he spelled, he spelled, he started to spell coverage and it screwed it up and he fell asleep. Like, that's all you have to say and it goes away. 
but they try to make it into this grand thing, and it's like, what? And everybody can see through it transparently. It's ridiculous. It's it's look, throw out the parties. It's our first experience of having an insane narcissist run the country, and right. uh, and it's going as expected. Pretty, yeah, of course. It's the first time to we've ever. Green, he, to quote Dennis Green, he is who we thought he'd be. You know, <laughs> the the climate thing. Just reading the stories, and it's like, what's the upside of pulling out of this? I, it, uh, see, this is why I didn't want I mean, to he just talk keeps about doing this. The, he just keeps trying to do like a base play, and it's like, you know, he's trying to appeal to his 38, 35% on a good day of people that support him. And it's like, if he wants to get reelected or wants to really build the party, which I don't even think he cares about the Republican Party. I think that was just a vehicle for him to get in. But assuming he wants to get things done, you can't just appeal to the same base, you know? I know it worked once, and independents, I guess, were willing to take a chance on him because of his amazing business acumen or because they didn't like Hillary or whatever, but you can't count on that same base. You can't count on that, those same voters being there in two years for the midterms and four years for the election. Most presidents try to, like, expand that so they have some better prospects of getting things through Congress where Congress is afraid, oh, God, he'll, he'll come in and campaign against me, but nobody's afraid of him. Can you give me, as a Republican, two positives from the Trump presidency so far? Well, I mean, I, this guy Gorsuch that he put on the Supreme Court is a good thing. For, and he has, you know, he's put some, I like this guy Mattis, who's like the, you know, Secretary of Defense. So his, some of his cabinet officials I like. But that's about it. But I mean, he's, he's causing horrific damage to the Republican Party because they're going to wear him like an anchor for generations to come. Well, at what point? I think. At what point do some people start to gravitate away and start working against them? Well, that's what I've been waiting for. But I mean, so far, I, I, every, I mean, nobody in Congress has a backbone to do anything. They're all deathly afraid that he's going to, you know, tweet against them or call them out. And I have no idea why they're so fearful of him, or they're so fearful of his base voters. I guess that in the Republican districts that they could get hurt. But uh, one, I don't know that that's really the case because you know, where are they going to go? And two, uh, you know, the guy is wildly unpopular. The smart play is to, is to do the right thing and stand up for conservative principles and, and don't fall into this, you know, North Korean cult of personality that he's developed. But they haven't done it so far, so I, I don't know what will be the breaking point, you know? I have no idea. You know what I'm starting to think? There might be something to this Russia stuff, Johnny. You heard it from here. You heard it here first. Might be something. <laughs> something I mean, I don't know. Something's just, fishy about this whole I, thing. I mean, just, look. Well, I, I mean, what worries you, of course, is that Russia has some shit on him, like on video, although I don't know what it could possibly be that would hurt him, because there's already so many bad things that have come out that should have hurt a regular candidate. But either they own him financially, or they own him because of some dirt that they have on him, and they obviously wanted him to get elected because they thought he could be compromised, and then, you know, if some of his campaign surrogates played with footsie with WikiLeaks and the Russians... It's not good, obviously, but so far there hasn't been any evidence to definitively prove that. Now, maybe with Comey stuff and everything will come out, and that'll be proven, but so far it's a lot of smoke without any fire. But. Well, it seems like he started a war with the intelligence community, which is not really who you want to go after. They, yeah, that they, seems like a bad idea. Stuff. Seems they like a bad like, idea. They where all the bodies are buried. Like, you know, <laughs> they know where every single body possible is buried. It's funny, the cable <laughs> channels have been showing all the president's men a lot lately, and I, I don't think it's a yeah. coincidence, but... You know, I, I'm sure more is going to come out. Anyway, all right, you have to go. Johnny, Yeah. have fun at the reunion. Give everybody a big hug for me. Uh, send me oh, lots well. of pictures and texts, and uh, well, and yeah. I'll keep talking to you over the weekend. 
Sounds good. All right. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Bye. Before we go, I wanted to wish everyone at The Ringer a happy one-year anniversary and thank everybody to, um, for uh, spreading the word for us. We announced uh, earlier this week that we are moving platforms from Medium to Vox, which is something that we've been thinking about for a while, trying to figure out how to build a bigger website. Medium was fantastic for us. In, you know, We were able to basically launch our site nine to ten months before we could have, and we were able to in that first year, try to find a bunch of young talent that we liked, try to build a multimedia business from scratch. Tate was our first employee who I think I hired him in October, 2015, somewhere around there. Now we're up to 70, hoping to have another 15 or so um, over the next nine months. The site itself is doing really well. We're up to 5 million uniques a month. And that's something that once we have a homepage that can, that we can show some more stuff and we're able to promote, especially the podcasts and videos and things like that and have a bigger umbrella. We ha- we actually have a lot of traffic of people that come to our homepage, which is a little unconventional. And uh, that's something that Grantland also had where uh, people just go and they know that we're, we're not putting a ton of stories up every day, but uh, the ones we do, you know, we put some thought into why we put them up there. So, I'm really excited for year two. This has been, you know, a dream to to start something from scratch. It's something I had been putting a lot of thought and time and energy into basically since, I don't know, 2014. And um, it started with Sean and Mallory and Juliet and Chris from Grantland. We, I, I think I've told this story before on the podcast, but once they left Grantland, we rented a house that was in off of Franklin in Hollywood and just were there every day trying to figure out what kind of site we wanted to make, um, how we would handle how the web has changed, how people got their content. Because when I, when I was coming up with Grantland in 2010, you know, people read, read websites and they read content on desktops and eventually that's evolved at first iPads and iPhones and then, everything became digital and now most of the traffic from stuff is is on on uh, phone devices so trying to figure out where we fit in with that and how to balance quality and immediacy that was our biggest challenge in in year one and we struggled with it like there's no question it's really hard to to have a quality you know when you're trying to do quality pieces but also trying to react to stuff that balance of knowing when to have a quicker piece versus when to have kind of a meteor piece. Um, that's been our biggest, I don't want to say struggle because I, I think especially over the last four months, we've figured out how to balance that, but it's a conundrum that I think every site is facing where do you chase traffic? Do you, when do you balance quality versus just trying to jump into a story because there's a story? What we found is, a lot of times the story has maybe a three or four hour shelf life and it's really helpful to have a, a good short, well-written piece that can play off that because there's a three, four hour span where people just want to read about, Oh, Paul George got traded to the Lakers. I want to read about this. And you kind of have to be in the mix there at Grantland. We didn't have to be in the mix. We were part of ESPN. We were, uh, we're able to kind of be over to the side and ESPN could handle all the hard news. If you want a hard news breaking stuff right away, ESPN was right there. 
And if you wanted something that was a little more detached, a little more meat, features, bigger stuff, oral histories, columns, essays, all the stuff we were doing, um, we, we fit in with there. Here, it's a little different. It's a question of when stuff happens, um, how do you react to it? And how does that affect the decisions you make maybe 12 hours later? I think if you look at what we did with the finals in, in game one, O'Connor, who was on earlier in the podcast, he wrote, wrote kind of the reaction piece and it was good. It's five minutes long and it was a nice take on the game. And then Charks came in this morning with kind of a deeper dive on the seven things that he noticed and more video and stuff like that. And the balance of those two, both of them could be read two days later. Both of them could be read immediately. And, you know, that's, that's been, uh, that's been something that we've had a lot of fun collectively trying to figure out how to do it. But, you know, you can't do a site like this unless everybody just commits to it and works their asses off. And we have so many people that, uh, you know, are up late hours at night working on weekends, working when they were supposed to have Memorial Day off and then something happened. And, and especially when you're starting from the ground floor and you're you're a little understaffed and the sum of the Part, the whole has to exceed the sum of the parts, basically, or whatever that phrase is. I can never get that right. What is it, Tate? The whole, how does it go, Tate? The whole, I can't remember how it goes. But you just need people who are super committed and who believe in what they're doing. And we have that. And that's been, for me, the biggest um, the biggest thrill of, the, of this first year is just the people we have are fantastic. And they work their asses off and really believe in what we're doing. They care about each other. And uh, it's just been cool. And year two, you know, definitely more video. We have to figure out um, so much of the internet and especially a lot of the uh, advertising dollars are going into video right now. And we have a whole bunch of things we've been trying on there, but that when you want to grow a business, um, you know, you have to have a bunch of things. And that's something we realized before we launched the site is you can't launch a site that's just words anymore. And even at Grantland, we knew that, like we knew, a big part of our strategy shifted the first year. It was just about, we're going to have good writing and we're going to have podcasts and nothing else was on the table. And then YouTube started throwing money around and we we're like, Oh, we could start a video channel. That'll be cool. And then that evolves and suddenly we're making documentaries and series and stuff like that. And you kind of have to follow the momentum of where things are going. And for us, like right now, video is, is, the biggest thing and it's it's a constant creative challenge to figure out um what's best for what's best for a written piece what's best for a video piece what's best for a podcast and you just you know eventually you you hope that you have something for everybody and that you're doing everything at a really high level which is the goal for us for year two it's it's a really good time to create content there's a lot of a lot of uh a lot of potential partners out there and there's um, a lot of different ways to do it. And people, everyone who's doing this is trying to figure it out. Some people are doing it better than others. We're just happy to be in the mix. And, uh, and it's been just a tremendous, tremendous year one that we've, we've all really loved making the site, creating it and the ebb and flow of, of, uh, of doing it even if it wears you down sometimes, it's definitely worth it, especially when you have days like yesterday where we had just so much good content and it's going to keep getting better. And, you know, you go into year two, year three, you figure out what you need. Oh, it's almost like building a football team. Um, oh, we need a corner. 
ah, we kind of need a backup linebacker. Ah, you know what? We could we could get better at, in the kicking game, and you just keep adding until you until you keep getting better. So it's been awesome. But I wanted to thank everybody that worked for for uh, so hard for this last year because it's it's been awesome to watch. It really has. It's been uh, it's been certainly the most thrilling experience of my career. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. Enjoy the uh, enjoy the weekend. Don't forget to subscribe to the Binge Mode podcast, um, which is launching on June 5th. And don't forget about the Larry Wilmore and Cousin Sal podcast because those launched a couple weeks ago. And uh, and check out TheRinger.com. I'm going to try to write something about the finals next week, so stay tuned for that. But we have a ton of great basketball stuff up there, so um, you can hear all of that. And if you missed Ice Cube, who I did a podcast with on Wednesday, he was fantastic. And I actually... I should have put more thought into how cool that podcast was going to be because I was surprised. I was like, why am I surprised that Ice Cube is great on a podcast? Because he was awesome. The stories he told were, were great, especially about L.A. and 87, 92. So that was pretty cool. Um, all right. Shout out to Holy Cross. Enjoy the weekend. And I'll be back next week on the BS Podcast. <laughs>